Good morning, Grace. Uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to Ruth chapter 3. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so uh, let's pray and we'll begin. Father, thank you so much for uh, your great plan of sending your son Jesus, who lived the life that we've all tried to live in our own righteousness to be made right with you, but he lived the life that we could never live. He was perfect without sin. And he died the death that we all want to avoid. He died the death that we all deserve. And God, you raised him from the dead, and none of us could ever pull that off. So we focus upon him this morning and his work of redemption in our lives, God. And there may be people here that don't know you, and I ask that you would regenerate them by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning as they hear about you, as they hear about redemption as they hear about your sovereignty, God. For those of us who are your children, would you open our eyes this morning to see wonderful things out of your word. And Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit this morning, God, you would begin transforming us and making us a church body that takes risks to see good come to others, to see joy come to others, and to see your kingdom advanced and extended in this world. So, Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Marriage proposals are like daredevil stunts, kind of like evil Knievel, you know, jumping over hundreds of cars on a motorcycle. Marriage proposals are going to end one of two ways, success or failure. The failed marriage proposal stings and the successful one brings much relief and joy. I've heard many a story of each. In fact, I've seen some pretty miserable marriage proposals at live sporting events on YouTube. Word of advice, men. Make sure the woman that you want to marry wants to marry you before you ask her. And if at all possible, don't use a public ceremony to seal the deal unless you know for sure how it's going to end. The trade-off of a botched marriage, a public marriage proposal is not worth what you thought it would be had it succeeded if it doesn't succeed. As one astute theologian once said, you got to know when to fold them. It's Kenny Rogers, he's a theologian. We all are. There'll be a whole other sermon on that at some point in my ministry here. We're all theologians. If, men, if you aren't positive that she'll say yes, then it's time to fold them. In a nutshell, when it comes to marriage proposals, the highs are high and the lows are low. If you think she's going to get cold feet, then don't pull some crazy proposal feet, F-E-A-T. That's what Ruth does in this chapter come to a very interesting passage of scripture. What in the world is happening in Ruth chapter 3? A midnight rendezvous to the threshing floor by a poor, foreign, widowed Moabite woman who lies down next to a rich Israelite guy and takes the covers off of his feet. Can we possibly glean any applications from this strange passage? 
Let me make two comments before we begin our exposition. First, this is why I love to preach through whole books of the Bible, because you can't dodge passages like this. You can't jump over passages like this. You have to come face to face with them. And it makes you, the listener, think each time you see one of these passages, what are you going to do with that passage, Pastor? Actually, I'm still wondering what I'm going to do with that passage. Second, what we'll see is that this passage is descriptive and not prescriptive. It is describing something that is happening, but it is not prescribing something for us to do. It's telling us what happened in this cultural context. It is not telling us to do this. Ladies, you do not want to sneak into a man's bedroom at midnight, lie down by his feet, and take his covers off and wait for him to wake up. The Hebrew word for that is stalker. (laughs) He'll think you're stalking him, and that will be one gigantic red flag waving, and he's done with the relationship. So what do we do with a passage like this that describes that very thing? Our big idea today is this. God moves when you marry your prayers and your plans. What I mean is that God moves in this world. His kingdom is extended. His kingdom is advanced. When we marry or join our prayers with our plans, sometimes we just pray and we don't move out and do anything. Sometimes we don't pray and we just move. Some people just rest in God's sovereignty, they pray, and they don't ever do anything. They just sit. And some people just charge right ahead. They never pray and think about the decisions that they're making and the things that they're doing, and they never think about the ramifications for their own life or for the life of their family or the church body they're involved in. They don't pray about decisions. They think, this is what I need to do, and they do it, and they don't consider the effect that it has on others. Some of us have cold feet, and we just pray and sit Some of us have swift feet, and we just charge ahead and do what we think is right and correct. But we need both. We need to be a people that pray and a people that act. And that's what we see Naomi and Ruth doing in this chapter. So let's look at God's word. Look at verse 1. Hear the words of the sovereign God. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? With whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. We left off last week in chapter 2 wondering if something would happen with Boaz because Naomi said he's a relative of ours, a a redeemer. He's related to us. Uh, Naomi knew the redeemer's responsibility in ancient Israelite culture. The the redeemer within a family uh, was called to protect a relative's rights and to see to their continued social well-being. When one of your family members found themselves in a pickle, if you will, it was the redeemer's responsibility to come along and to help the family member out. So 
a redeemer was responsible for redeeming a relative, one who might have sold himself into slavery. If you became so poor and broke that you had to sell yourself into slavery in order to provide food for your family, the redeemer could come along and say, hey, I'm related to him. I want to buy him back, and they had to let him go. Or a redeemer could come along and buy back property that a family member had sold. So it's likely that Elimelech and Naomi, when they left uh, Bethlehem and went down to Moab, it's likely that they sold their land. So a redeemer could come back. Perhaps Boaz will do that. We'll see. A redeemer could also avenge uh, the blood of a family member who was unjustly murdered. And a redeemer was also required to raise up an heir if someone had died childless, uh, to come alongside and, we're adults here, help that relative out, help them have kids, if you will. And there are passages that talk about that in Scripture. So Naomi's thinking at this point, Boaz is one of our redeemers. Maybe he will come in and help us buy our land back for us. And Naomi's little scheming, maybe he'll see you and want to marry you. We also saw in chapter 2 that Ruth had gleaned for almost two months now, and the barley and wheat harvests were over. And though they had a lot of food stocked up in their cupboards, though they got the extra freezer and put it in their garage to store food in, eventually that food would run out and they would be back to square one again. So Naomi is hoping at this point, maybe Boaz, because he's one of our redeemers, maybe he will step up and intervene. Naomi's a woman. She's thinking, this has gone on for two months now. Ruth, you've been gleaning in his fields Maybe Boaz will move the relationship along. Naomi's like you ladies. She's a matchmaker. You know, you like to put people together. She's hoping that this relationship will go on, go beyond Boaz being the native landowner at, to husband and, and Ruth, the alien scavenger, gleaning in his fields to his wife. That's what she's hoping because she's a woman. But Boaz is a man and he doesn't call back right away. He waits like most men do. He's dragging his feet. But lest we throw Boaz under the bus here for waiting, he may have been sensitive to Ruth still being a widow, not wanting to impose himself on her until she had grieved and was emotionally ready for marriage. Whatever the case may have been, Boaz is not making any moves, and Naomi says, it's time to get a plan together, girl. I want to get you two together. So she takes matters into her own hands. In verse 1, we see Naomi taking responsibility on herself to find Ruth a husband. It was an obvious move on, on Naomi's part because, one, she cares for Ruth. She calls her my daughter, which highlights the affection and the love that existed between this daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. Secondly, we saw in chapter 1, verse 9, that Naomi had, in fact, prayed for Ruth to find a husband. She said, I'm praying that you find rest or security in the arms of a husband. And here in chapter 3, she says, should I not find you rest? Should I not find you security and peace? What a woman uh, expects to find in the arms of a loving husband? Naomi knows, I prayed this for you on that dusty road as we left Moab and went back to Bethlehem. I prayed that you would find rest in the arms of a loving husband. And now in chapter 3, verse 1, I am going to marry my prayer from chapter 1 with my plan in chapter 3. She wants to help Ruth find a husband. Naomi is showing us that God moves when you marry your prayers and your plans. Now notice how focused Naomi is on the needs of Ruth here. She wants Ruth 
to be cared for. Naomi is not thinking of herself here. She knows no one's going to marry me now. I, I'm old and wrinkly. I, I'm, you know, I'm not even playing the field. But she, she seeks this out for Ruth. She knows that one day Ruth will be old just like her. Naomi knows one of these days you're going to be in my predicament. And if you don't find a husband and you don't have any kids, then one day you're going to be just like me, broke with no land and no one to care for you. So Naomi unfolds this plan to Ruth. And the more I read it, the more I like Naomi. I love what she's doing here. She says, Boaz is a relative. She's saying, you remember Boaz, don't you? You've been gleaning in his fields for two months. Remember how you just chanced and stumbled upon his field? Remember how we've talked about how God in his sovereignty led you there? You've seen him. He's one of our redeemers. He could come in and redeem us. Have you seen his profile on eHarmony.com, Ruth? This guy's a keeper. He's got money, and he's got character. So she hatches this plan. I want you to go to the threshing floor tonight. They're going to be winnowing barley and wheat tonight. You've got to get down there. The threshing floor was a place, and it was sometimes on tops of hills because of the wind, where uh, wheat and barley would be beat out with a stick or treaded over by animals, or a wooden sledge was dragged across the top to separate the grain, and then an individual would throw the grain up in the air, and the wind would blow away the chaff, and the grain would fall, and they would put it into a big pile and then run it through a filter or a sieve to weed out the dirt and the rocks and straw, etc. And Naomi says, I know they're going to be winnowing barley tonight and wheat on the threshing floor. And I need you to get down there. It was a celebration. They were celebrating Yahweh, the sovereign Lord's goodness to them, because he lifted the famine and now he has blessed them with food. So she says, I need you to go down there. Now, we don't know how Naomi knew Boaz was going to be there. She just says, I know he's going to be there. The Bible does not tell us how Naomi knew. If the Bible gave us every detail and answered every one of our questions, then it would be too heavy to carry around. Okay, so we just take the text as we have it. She says, this is what's happening, Ruth. You need to get yourself ready. So she says to her, get cleaned up, girl. Okay. Naomi may be an old woman, but she knows a thing or two about relationships. So she tells Ruth to take a shower and to put on some deodorant and to put on some perfume. Remember, where's Ruth been? She's been out sweating it out in the fields. You can't show up to a date smelling like barley harvest, okay? Ladies, Never buy a perfume called Barley Harvest. I don't care how exotic it sounds. Ruth smelled like Barley Harvest. So Naomi says, you need to take a shower, anoint yourself, and get ready. This is my plan. And she tells her to put on your cloak. The NIV renders it, put on your best clothes. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think Naomi wants Ruth to get cleaned up, to smell good. But since it would be dark outside... I don't think Naomi is concerned with Ruth wearing her best clothes, like putting on a nice dress, because men just don't notice your nice outfits. If it's 10 years old and the style is 10 years old, we have no idea. You ladies notice that kind of stuff. We don't notice that kind of stuff. I think what she's saying is put on your, your outer garment, put on your cloak, because it's going to be a long night. 
You need to go down to the threshing floor and see him, and then you need to wait until he lies down. So you're going to be sitting around a lot in the dark, like Mission Impossible, you know, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Get in, let him see you, get out, sit down and wait. So put on a jacket is what she's saying here. Secondly, it could be that she wants her to wash anoint herself and change her clothes because she might be telling Ruth it's time to take off the widow's garments. In our culture, she's wearing all black. And said, it's time for you to let people know that your period of grieving over your husband, Machlone, who is now dead, it's time to let people know that you're not grieving anymore. So she could be saying even, take off your widow's garments and let Boaz know that you're available. And this may be why Boaz has not initiated any romantic moves at this moment, because he's giving her time to grieve. I think Naomi wants Boaz to see Ruth, not as a dirty harvester in mourning clothes, but as a woman who is saying publicly, my grieving period is over and I am available. So Naomi wants Ruth to say hello to Boaz after he's eaten, Maybe he'll notice you wearing the shirt that says, I am no longer a grieving widow. Maybe then he'll start thinking. So she says, go down to the floor. Don't see him until he's eaten. Watch where he lies down and go uncover his feet. So the plan is get cleaned up, get down to the threshing floor, but don't let him see you until he's eaten. Say hello and then get out of there. Then spy on him. Watch where he lays down to sleep and then go lay down by him. And take the blankets off of his feet. Take the covers off. Anybody find this bizarre? I don't know about you, but I am not about to tell my two little girls, Tabitha and Piper, that they can get dressed up, put on some perfume, go to a party, go lay down next to some guy, and do whatever he tells you. I'm ripping this chapter out of my Bible. I have no problem with Tabitha and Piper coming to me someday and saying, Daddy, why does Ruth go from chapter 2 to chapter 4? It just does, baby girls. It just does. See, while this seems bizarre to us, we must realize that this was perhaps the best and only option that these two poor widows had. There is no father here to protect Ruth to arrange a marriage for her. There's no daddy to sit in the living room cleaning his gun as some boy comes over to date and court his daughter. This is the only option that they have. They are taking a risk. They are taking a chance and there's conviction here. A trust in the sovereignty of God over their lives. You sense it in Naomi's plan. You sense it in Ruth's response in verse 5 where she says, all that you say I will do. This is not the normal situation. This is not normally how uh, relationships are put together. It's usually the man pursuing the woman, correct? It's how I did it with Heather in college. Formed a study group. I didn't need a study group. I studied better on my own. I played dumb. I was like, anybody want to get together and study history? for some test, and then I told the guy, go ask that girl over there. See if she wants to come to the study group. This is how you do it, right? This is the only option that Naomi and Ruth have. No dad to set up the relationship. Naomi is trying to get Ruth married, trying to get her a man so she will be taken care of for the rest of her life. It's a a selfless act that she's doing. 
They were taking a risk and they were resting in God's providence, in God's sovereignty. There was conviction that was born, no doubt, through prayer. There was this calculated plan. There's risk and there's rest. There's conviction and calculation, and it all comes under the umbrella of God's sovereignty and God's providence. It shows us that God moves when we marry our prayers with our plans. Things may not turn out how we want. They had no idea if this plan was going to work. But we can rest assured that God's hand is working in the midst of our planning. He has a purpose, and it will be accomplished. So we plan, we pray, we move, we act, and we rest, and it's all under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. And that's exactly what Naomi and Ruth are doing here. All right, look at verse 16. Some of you want to know what happens on this date. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by Yahweh, the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Notice in verse 6 here how it says that Ruth did just as Naomi commanded her. She's, she's bought into the plan. They've prayed about it, and she's acting out. Now, there would have been this celebration at the threshing floor that night as they celebrated Yahweh's goodness to them, lifting the famine, providing them with food. They were rejoicing in his blessing over them. After the winnowing, the people would eat and drink. It would be a celebration. Then they would go to sleep. They'd been working hard all day, so Boaz is tired. They would spend the night by their grain so that people wouldn't come and steal it, and that's why Boaz is outside sleeping and so Ruth is watching him as everybody's eating and drinking. She's kind of off in the shadows. She's, got her, she's stalking him, but it's, it's a good kind of stalking at this point, I think. After he has gone to sleep, she sneaks up and uncovers his feet. Now, we have to feel the suspense and the tension of the situation here. This plan could be disastrous. Boaz could wake up, and because prostitutes often went to the threshing floor at night, Boaz could wake up and think she's a prostitute and say, get out of here, you strumpet, move on. Or God could, in his sovereignty, even though he has groggy eyes, cause him to be awake and alert enough to see exactly what Ruth was asking of him. God in his sovereignty might open Boaz's groggy eyes to understand Ruth's actions. It's a risky plan. Naomi's plan is risky, and it all depends on how Boaz responds. Will he think she's a prostitute? Or will he understand 
And it all depends on God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, his providence. According to the Westminster Confession, chapter 5, section 1 says this, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least. That means midnight rendezvous to the threshing floor. By his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Naomi and Ruth would affirm the Westminster Confession here. They believe in God's sovereignty, and it's because they believe in God's sovereignty over their lives they hatch this risky plan. Understand this, Grace. Human energetic activity is stimulated by God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty and human responsibility blend together in harmony. God's sovereignty, His providence, frees you and releases you, not to say let go and let God, but to get going because God is going, to get moving because God is moving and extending his kingdom in this world. God's sovereignty does not cancel human activity. It invites it. God's sovereignty over your life is an invitation for you to pray and to plan and to act. God moves when you marry your prayers and your plans. Now, let's get back in the text. Some of you are still wondering what's going to happen. Look at verse 8. At midnight, Boaz was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So Ruth uncovers Boaz's feet here. The cold night air causes him to shiver and to wake up. He's got cold feet. He opens his groggy eyes, and voila, there's a woman laying at his feet. The Hebrew word hene is used here, which means to see, look, or behold. It's an invitation by the author or the narrator for us, the audience, to come in and to see it with our own eyes. The narrator saying, come here, enter the scene. you got to see this. See him? She uncovered his feet, and there's a woman right there at his feet, at the exposed feet of Boaz. And Boaz wakes up and asks her who she is. And Ruth responds, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wing over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It's risky language there. Interestingly, the word servant here is not the same one Ruth used in chapter 2, verse 13. Last week, we saw her say, I'm not worthy, I'm your servant, meaning I am the lowest person on the rung of the social ladder, Boaz. Now, she doesn't use that Hebrew word, she uses this elevated Hebrew word. In 2.13, she saw herself as a, a Moabite outcast. Now she speaks of herself as a servant who has family connections to Boaz. She wants to challenge Boaz to fulfill his role as a family redeemer. In a sense, Ruth has moved up the social scale. She now knows more of Israelite culture. She knows that Boaz is a close relative, a kinsman redeemer who could step in and redeem her and Naomi because Boaz is related to Elimelech. Boaz is related to Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. Boaz is related to Machlon, 
Ruth's deceased husband. So Ruth is asking Boaz here, will you step up and fulfill your family responsibilities? But she does even more than that. Ruth actually asks Boaz to marry her. That's what the phrase, spread your wings over your servant, means. It was a euphemism for marriage. In the ancient Near East, it was a symbolic act of marriage. In Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel says that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, spreads his wings over his bride, Israel. Essentially, Ruth is saying this, Boaz, you observed that I was under Yahweh's wings, and you prayed that I would continue to be under his protective wings. In chapter 2, verse 12, that's what you said to me. That's what you prayed for me, Boaz. Now I want you to answer your own prayer for me. And I want you to marry me. I want you to marry your prayers to your actions. I want you to marry your prayers and your plans. I want you to marry me and redeem Naomi. And then she gives the reason why in verse 9. Look, for you are a redeemer. As we mentioned, redeemers were family members who could bail another family member out of hardship, buy back their land, buy them back out of slavery, avenge the death of a loved one, or come along and help, uh, we're adults here, help this lady have kids. She's saying you're a redeemer. So how does Boaz respond? Look at verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after the young men, whether poor or rich. In verse 10, when Boaz speaks of the kindness that Ruth has shown him, it's the Hebrew word for hesed, which we've been talking about all along in the book of Ruth. It's that loyal covenant love. The first act of hesed by Ruth was in chapter 1 when she clung to Naomi, her mother-in-law. How has Ruth shown Hesed to Boaz? How has Ruth, the poor Moabite widow, shown Hesed to Boaz, the rich Israelite? Boaz gives us the answer in verse 10. He says, because you have not gone after the younger men, whether poor or rich. You see, Ruth could have married anyone. Boaz is surprised that she wants to marry him. He's older, probably doesn't look like Brad Pitt, probably doesn't have a six-pack abs, probably has a little bit of a gut, probably balding on top a little bit. But for Ruth, it goes beyond looks. Remember, Ruth is a godly woman. The reason this is hesed is because she has Naomi's interest in mind. Ruth could have married a younger, better-looking man, rich or poor, and been taken care of by him, she could have left Naomi to fend for herself. But she wants to marry Boaz so that Naomi, too, would be cared for by Boaz as a redeemer. That is hesed. That is loyal, covenant love. Who marries someone because it will benefit their mother-in-law? This is why Boaz is shocked. Ruth is a godly woman. She may be Moabite by birth, but she is now Israelite through the new birth, if you will, because now she trusts in Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. And so Boaz tells her, don't worry, I will marry you. And Boaz says, why? I know as well as all the townspeople that you're a godly woman. You're a worthy woman. It's the same word they're worthy that he says about her that the narrator described to Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will marry you because I've heard that you're a 
You're a godly woman, and you love the Lord. Sounds too, be, too good to be true here, doesn't it? All the ladies are like, oh, it's so good. It's romance. They're getting together, and all the ladies are giddy, and all the men are like, yes, there's hope for the guys who are overweight and balding that some beautiful, exotic woman from Moab will, will, will be with him. So everyone's happy here. The ladies are happy because there's romance. The men are happy because he's a little overweight and balding, and he gets the young, pretty girl from Moab. But like any good love story, there has to be some resistance to the lovers getting together. Boaz tells Ruth, there's a closer relative, a closer redeemer, and he gets first dibs on redeeming. So Boaz tells Ruth, wait here until morning. He wants to protect her character. If you leave now, people are going to think that you're a prostitute who's come down to the threshing floor. It's not safe out there. It's the time of the judges. Stay here. I'll watch over you and protect you. Wait till the morning. And if that first redeemer will redeem you, then Boaz says, then I must bow out because that's what God's word says. He's a godly man. But he says, but if the man won't redeem you, I'm telling you right now, I'll take an oath. I will certainly marry you. See, Boaz is a man of character. He could have consummated the marriage at the moment and said, oops, oh, I forgot about you. You're a closer redeemer. Too late, already married her. But he's a godly man. Now, look what happens in verse 14. So Ruth lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And Ruth told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So Naomi replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, you know, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi are not getting any sleep tonight. Naomi's at home pacing the floor. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Ruth is laying there. She's all giddy. Her heart's fluttering. She's like, oh, it's so close. You know, I'm going I'm to be married. And Boaz is thinking, how can I get this other redeemer to bow out? What can I say to him to get him to say, no thanks, I don't want to do it. So Boaz then tells Ruth at morning time to get up and leave so that no one will think she was at the threshing floor doing something inappropriately he's trying to guard her character then he fills her garment with six measures of barley some scholars estimate that this is up to 80 pounds we don't know all the text says is he gave her six scoops and she heads home and Boaz I think heads off to Starbucks where he's thinking how can I get this guy to bow out what can I say to him how can I marry my prayer for Ruth in chapter 2 that she would find protection under the wings of Yahweh? How can I marry that to my plan? He's trying to come up with a plan because in chapter 4, we're going to see next week that he hatches this plan. He will marry his prayer from chapter 2 with his plan in chapter 4 so that God's kingdom will be extended. So he goes to Starbucks to come up with a plan. Naomi's pacing the floor. She's up all night, curious how things turned out. Ruth comes home with six scoops of barley in her garment. And Naomi says to her, how did you fare, my daughter? Literally, in Hebrew, it's, who are you? Now, we know that Naomi knows who Ruth is. What does she mean when she says, who are you? Naomi is asking Ruth, are you Mrs. Boaz now? And then Ruth shows her the six scoops of barley, explains that Boaz says there's another redeemer. He's closer. Naomi says, you know what? Stay put. 
sit tight. He won't rest until the matter is settled today. And so we have to sit tight until next week to see what happens. Or you can read ahead in your Bibles if you want. She says, sit tight, Ruth. He's a godly man. He will settle the matter today. And we sit tight to find out. But what we must never do is sit tight in our life. God's sovereignty should stimulate us to move out and to take risks to bring good to others and joy to others. If God, as the Westminster Confession states, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. If that is true, then shouldn't Christians be the most active people on the planet? God's sovereignty should not paralyze us us. God's sovereignty should not cause us to sit tight. God's sovereignty should propel us out to move and to act in our lives. Godly people marry their prayers with their plans because they understand that the God that they serve is sovereign and his will will be accomplished. God moves when you marry your prayers and your plans. Some of us just pray. And we say, God is sovereign, so I'll just pray. And we never act. We never move. We never have a plan that we see come about. And some of us never pray. And we have plans. And we think what we think is the best thing for ourselves or for our church. And so instead of praying about a situation or a decision, we just launch out and we make decisions not thinking about the ripple effect that it might have across a church body or in our own family or in our own lives. So some of us just move and we never pray and consider, will this bring good to others or will it just satisfy me? God moves when you marry your prayers and your plans. This plan may have tanked for Naomi and Ruth. It doesn't, if you're wondering. It it ends well. But what would have happened if Boaz said, no thanks? What kind of wisdom and counsel would you say to them? It's the same for any of us. There are times in our lives when we scratch our head and we wonder, why did that happen? Where was God? Why did that happen? And God, in his sovereignty, actually last week read me to, led me, as I began reading a book by a Puritan, John Flavel, The Mystery of Providence. I mean, if this isn't sovereignty, I don't know what is. Last week, I'm like, I want to read that John Flavel book. And you may have noticed a, a quote that I put in the newsletter this week where John Flavel said, because Hebrew is led, read from right to left, for you it's this way, Flavel said, some providences like Hebrew letters must be read backwards. Sometimes things happen and we don't know why God allows it. And we must read backwards over our lives to see what God was doing. Here's a quote that I came across by Flavel in this book. Talking about how God specializes in bringing redemption out of even the worst situations possible. He says this. Oh, how ravishing and delectable. And think about those words. 
Oh, how ravishing and delectable a sight will it be to behold at one view the whole design of providence and the proper place and use of every single act which we could not understand in this world. You ever have something happen in your life and you're like, I don't understand why that happened. And your jaw drops and you scratch your head and you're perplexed and you're like, why did that just happen? Well, God, how could that be? Do you ever find yourself there? Flavel says, when you stand before the Lord, it will be ravishing and delectable when you see all at once what God was doing. He says, all the dark, intricate, puzzling providences at which we were sometimes so offended. Have you ever been offended when something happened? And you're wondering, God, what is going on? And sometimes amazed. you ever been amazed? He says, all the dark, intricate, puzzling providences at which we were sometimes so offended and sometimes amazed, which we could neither reconcile with the promise nor with each other. Nay, which we so unjustly censured and bitterly bewailed as if they had fallen out quite against our happiness. We shall then see on that day to be to us, as the difficult passage through the wilderness was to Israel, the right way to a city of habitation. Psalm 107, 7. Sometimes things happen in our lives. Sometimes things happen in a church body, and we don't know why. And we scratch our head and we're perplexed and we're puzzled and we say, God, why did this happen? And we have to trust that God has a plan, that God specializes in redemption and can turn any situation around. That's what the gospel is about, that God sent his son Jesus to save us and to redeem us when we were dead and in the coffin of our own sins. And God can do that with the little things that sometimes don't feel so little in our lives when they land on us. The burdens and the griefs that we feel and the pain and the hurt when decisions are made and conversations are had and actions are taken and we are perplexed by that. We know that God in his sovereignty is still moving. Jesus is our redeemer. He is God incarnate. He is God with us, Emmanuel, and grace He is with us even today to walk with us. Any of us who are experiencing any sort of pain or hurt or who are perplexed and questioning him and wondering what is happening, God is with us today. May he give us grace to move forward as a church body in the coming years to make an impact for his kingdom as we marry our prayers, and our plans for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love, your sovereignty. We've been talking about it. We see it in Ruth chapter 3. We've seen it in all of the book of Ruth. We see it in all of the Bible, God, that you are an infinitely wise God. And that one day, Father, it will be ravishing and delectable when you show us the one camera angle of history because right now God we've got several and we're trying to figure out what's going on and someday God you will show us the one camera angle the one lens to look through over the course of all of our lives as we've experienced different pains and hurts and tragedies and you will show us God and on that day our mouths will fall open 
not being perplexed, but in wonder and amazement. And we will promptly fall on our knees and declare you to be the infinitely wise God who specializes in redemption. Bring redemption, Father, we pray, out of the mess of all of our lives. And it looks different for each one of us, God. Bring redemption out of the mess of our lives for the good of your people, for the expansion of your kingdom, and most importantly, for the glory of your name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.